Thank you, worship team, for leading us to the throne this morning. Appreciate you guys each and every week. If you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please turn to Genesis chapter 15. Got a few people out. Apparently, it is fall break. I'll just tell you, fall breaks of the devil. We should come up with a secret handshake or something while everyone's gone. Uh, we're back in Genesis after being out for a couple of weeks. Um, we took a trip down to Orlando for a, a wedding of a family friend. And then uh, last week, we, it was a blessing to be a part of the missions conference and have uh, Greg. Uh, last name, uh, we will keep it a secret because he serves in closed countries and represents people who serves in closed countries. But it was a blessing to have Greg with us and uh, hear about what God is doing around the world. But we're back in Genesis chapter 15. Um, it, since it's been uh, really three weeks since we were in Genesis, I want to give a little bit of a background, a little bit of context of where we are in our study walking through this book. In Genesis chapter 13, of course we picked it up in chapter 12, we were reintroduced to who Abram is and, and he was called out of Ur of the Chaldeans and God says, go to a land that I'm going to show you and he does that. And he brings his family with him, um, his wife and his, and his nephew Lot, and um, all that he has. And in chapter 13, he and his nephew split ways. Uh, there's not enough room for both of them, and so uh, they separate. Abram stays in the land of Canaan, and Lot goes and settles among the cities of the valley near the city of Sodom. In chapter 14... We saw this coalition of armies invade Canaan from the east, led by Ketelomer, the king Ketelomer, and uh, they invade Canaan. And so the kingdoms, the nations, the city-states that are there in the land of Canaan, they, they fight against them to try to defend their land, and they lose. They lose um, in a big way. And as a part of their loss, in the fray, Lot, the nephew of Abram, gets kidnapped, taken away. And then we see Lot, uh, we see Abram in chapter 14 as a, a type of Christ, a prefiguring of Christ, a foreshadowing of Christ. As he goes on this rescue mission, he leaves Canaan and goes on this rescue mission and he rescues Lot. He goes to battle against that invading army with 318 of his hired hands and defeats that army and rescues Lot as well as the rest of the land and the nations of Canaan. And then after that, as he's coming back, as Abram is returning from his victory, he's met by two kings that want to honor him for his victory. One is the king of Sodom. And the king of Sodom, Sodom tries to uh, convince Ada, uh, Abram to compromise his convictions and take some of the spoils of war, but Abram refuses to do that. He refuses to take any of the spoils of war because he has raised his hand to the Lord Most High and he doesn't want to be bought by another king. But then the other king who comes out to honor him is the king of Salem, which we said was Jerusalem the city of peace, the, the, the city of Shalom. And this guy's name was Melchizedek. And we saw in Melchizedek another prefiguring of Christ as he was not just a king, but he was also a priest representing and foreshadowing Jesus Christ who is not just a king, 
but he is also our great high priest. So that was chapter 14. And then chapter 15, which we covered the first part of three weeks ago, takes place right after that scene with the kings greeting Abram after his victory. And chapter 15 is where the Lord is going to remind Abram of his covenant promises. And most specifically in the text that we're going to look at today, he's going to formalize that covenant in an actual ceremony. So the chapter itself is really divided into two parts, two visions. We call them theophanies, where, where God uh, manifests himself both visibly and audibly to Abram. The first was in the first six verses that we covered last time. And in that, uh, in that vision, God shows up to Abram and he says, Fear not. I am your shield, and your reward will be very great. He had declined the reward from the king of Sodom. He declined any of the spoils of war. So God says, your reward will be very great. But we saw Abram complaining and telling God, how is that going to happen? Because I don't, I don't have any offspring. You, you've promised me offspring, but I don't have any offspring. So how is that going to happen? And so he, he complains that he doesn't have an heir. He's impatient with God, with God's timetable. And he demonstrates that his trust in God and his promises was waning. And God, instead of losing his patience with Abram, which we would all do if we were God, he leads Abram outside and he tells him to look at the sky, look at the heavens, see all the stars in the sky. He says, if you can count them, then you'll be able to count your offspring, so shall your offspring be. And then right after that, we have the key verse of that section, really the key verse of the entire chapter of Genesis 15, verse 6, where it says, he believed the Lord, Abram believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And so Abram trusted God, and God counted that credited that to Abram as righteousness. And we, and we look back in, at, at Romans chapter 4 and we connected that to Galatians chapter 3 to see that Abram's belief here, according to the New Testament writers, Abram's faith was faith in the gospel. We're told, Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 3, that God preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. And that Abraham's faith in that, Abraham believing in that, was credited to him as righteousness. And so we, we unpacked in the Old Testament, not just the New, but the Old Testament, justification by faith alone. That we can only be justified and declared righteous before a holy God as sinners by faith in Christ. Not by works, not by what we do not by how we try to live, but by faith in Christ alone. And the same was true for Abram. And we saw that in a number of places in the Old Testament. So his faith was faith in the gospel. Not, not necessarily faith in this person named Jesus of Nazareth. He didn't necessarily know his name, but faith that God had promised that one would come from his seed, from his very own loins, as he told us a couple of weeks ago, that would defeat the that would crush the head of the serpent and defeat sin and death for all of his offspring and his offspring are those who come to faith in Christ. So that was the first vision in the first 6 verses. Now we move on to the second vision in verses 7 through 21. Lord willing we'll complete chapter 15 this morning. 
So that first vision in verses 1 through 6 was, uh, was used by God to reaffirm his promise to Abraham of descendants. Now, in verses 7 through 21, God is going to use this to reaffirm his promise of the land. We remember that God's promise to Abram, his covenant with Abram, was twofold. You're going to have descendants, and they're going to be the beginning of a nation, and, and through you all the nations of the earth will be blessed, and it also includes land, uh, inheritance of land for your offspring. And so now we're going to see that part of it reminded uh, to Abram in verses 17 through 21. So let's read verses 7 through 21 of Genesis chapter 15. Church, this is God's word. And I'm going to, by the way, uh, there's a lot of pronouns here that I want to make sure that we understand what the pronouns refer to. So I'm going to um, walk through here inserting the, the proper names for these pronouns. And God said to Abram, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But Abram said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? So God said to Abram, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And Abram brought to God all these. He cut them in half and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying, to your offspring, I give this land. From the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenazites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for your word. And Lord, we don't want to take for granted the blessing that it is to hold this book in our hands and to have the confidence to know that this is the very breath of God. We thank you for that, and we ask, Father, that you'd speak to us now through this. God, I pray that you would give me an anointing, Lord, from your spirit to be able to explain your word and exhort 
from your word. I pray that you would help all of us, Lord, to both understand this and apply it to our lives so that we would be a more pleasing offering and sacrifice to you in our day-to-day lives. We ask that you would do that in Jesus' name. Amen. So this section begins in verse 7 with God reminding Abram who he is and what he's done. He says, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. In other words, I'm the one who called you out of Ur. I I called you out of that land of pagan worship and idol worship. I called you out of that and and I called you to this land. I'm the one who did this. This is the land that I was going to give to you, and I'm the one who did this. But we see Abram is still struggling to believe God and his promises in verse 8. Verse 8 says, but he said, it's almost like a but Lord. O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? So again, Abram is struggling with doubt here. God has said, I'm going to give you this land. This is, I'm the one who's done this. I called you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to, to, to this land, to give you this land to possess it. And Abram's like, but how do I know? Like, how, how can I be sure, God? So he's, we see him struggling with doubt, maybe impatient with God's timetable, just like he was in the first part of this chapter. Remember how Abram complained in the first part. Look at verse 2. There Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. And the heir, the only heir I have is Eliezer, my servant. In verse 3 he says, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And what does God say? Behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and he said, look toward heaven, number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and counted it to him as righteousness. So Abram believed God in that. Believed him that he was going to provide offspring. He trusted him. He had had faith in God's promise of offspring. But clearly it wasn't a perfect faith. It wasn't an unassailable faith. He still struggled with doubt. It reminds me of the father of the boy who was born mute and demon-possessed in Mark chapter 9, who comes to Jesus begging that Jesus would heal his son. And what does Jesus say? If you believe, all things are possible for him who believes. And I love the response of the father. The father says, Lord, I believe, but help me in my unbelief. And so it's possible to believe and have faith as, as Abram did. Just two verses earlier, he believed and God counted it to him as righteousness. So there was a belief, but there's a struggling with doubt. And there's a struggling with continuing to believe. This is something that is common to man. And we see it in Abram. 
He's struggling here. Struggling with doubt, maybe impatience. Things not happen, happening the way that he thinks God should work them out. God had promised offspring. God had promised to give him the land, to possess it. And he, hadn't, he doesn't have any offspring, and he's certainly not possessing. He might be in the land, but so are these other ten nations that are listed in verse 21. He didn't possess it. And so he's impatient. He's, he's, things aren't happening the way he would expect them to happen. And so now, two verses later, after believing and God counting that belief and that faith to him as righteousness, now he's doubting again. He's doubting again. And he's exhibiting impatience again with God's timetable. It's silly, right, when we think of it. How obtuse of Abram. This is the sovereign God. This is creator. He's got a plan. Who, who is Abram to question it? Who is he to complain to a sovereign God? As if Abram is all-knowing, as if Abram knows what is best. But we do this all the time. We do it all the time. Things don't happen according to our expectation. Things don't happen according to our timetable. And we become impatient with God. And we complain to Him as if we are all-knowing, as if we know what is best for us. But we don't. There's only one sovereign, and we are not Him. But the Lord demonstrates amazing patience here, and I'm so grateful for this. Look at the patience with which God responds to Abram's doubts and struggling in his faith. Instead of responding to Abram the way I would respond, I would demonstrate impatience with him. I would probably smite him, but there's no smiting of Abraham here. God doesn't smite him, and he's not impatient with him. Instead, his response is gracious and patient. I'm so glad that this is also how God responds to you and I when we're impatient with his timetable, when when we're unsatisfied with how things are working out according to our expectations of God. And when we give in to a complaining and doubting spirit. So what Abram wants here is proof. He wants a sign. He wants to be able to know for sure that this is actually going to happen. That these promises that God made, that how can I know for sure that they're actually going to happen? I would probably, if I was a sovereign God, I probably would have said, because I told you they would happen, right? Just like we do as parents, because I told you so. But that's not how God responds. The Lord is much more gracious. What does he say? Verse 9. He said to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Now what in the world is going on here? Well, God is going to give Abram what he's asked for, a sign, a a, a symbolic assurance so that he can know and be assured that these promises are going to be fulfilled, that God's going to keep his promises. So he's going to give give Abram this symbolic proof, this symbolic sign that he will, in fact, possess the land and his inheritance, his offspring will, in fact, possess the whole land, that God will keep his promises. And the sign that he's going to give them, give Abram, will come in the form of 
a formal covenant ceremony. So God tells Abram to get these animals, to get a heifer, which is a female cow that hasn't had a calf yet, a young one that hasn't had a calf, a female goat, a ram, which is a male sheep, a dove, and a pigeon. Now we look at those, we look at those kinds of animals, and we think about the Jewish sacrificial system, right? And we automatically think, oh, God is telling Abram to go get some animals because he wants him to make an offering to him. And this is understandable that we would think this because those, most of those animals are typical of what we would see in a burnt offering, a, a, a sacrifice of worship in that day and age. But that's not what's happening here. First, because the Jewish sacrificial system is not set up yet, and it won't be for many, many years. But secondly, because there is no offering in this story. There is no burnt offering. Abram doesn't prepare these animals as a sacrificial offering. He does something pretty weird. He does something that we don't expect. He cuts them in half. Look at verse 10. He brought to God all these animals. He cut them in half and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. Now Moses doesn't record for us in the book of Genesis that Yahweh actually gave Moses the instructions to do this, but we can infer that from the text. He either, he either gave, them, gave uh, Abram the instructions to actually cut them in half and lay them out and do all this, or Abram knew that that's what God was doing. He was, he was entering into this covenant ceremony, and that was how the ceremony went. We can infer that from the text because the Lord later in this, in verses 17 through 21, when he actually does the ceremony, he uses the animals just as Moses, as Abram lays them out for him, cut in half and laid over against one another in rows. So this is very strange. It's not at all like any kind of sacrificial offerings that we have seen or will see in the Old Testament accounts of sacrificial offerings. It's not what we're accustomed to seeing in the Old Testament. Um, even though the sacrificial system wasn't set up, there were, there were already sacrifices that had been offered. We, we recall um, Noah, when the rains ended, uh, he offered sacrifices to God. He killed animals and he offered them as, as offerings to God. And so that was already happening, but clearly that, that's not what this is. This is something altogether different. Now before God actually performs the ceremony, what happens next is he puts Abram to sleep so that he can give him this second vision that starts in verse 12. He says, as the sun was going down, so this is the next evening, the first six verses that we covered three weeks ago was the first night, this is now the second night. So the sun was going down, and a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, which by the way is the Hebrew word for look, Moses wants us to envision this, he wants us to see this. So look, dreadful and great darkness fell upon Abram. Now this dreadful and great darkness that fell upon Abram here is a, is a foreboding of the prophecy that he's going to give in the next few verses about the Israelites spending time in Egypt. So let's read those verses, verses 13 through 16. Then the Lord said to Abram, 
know for certain, so he's, he's in this sleep, and God's speaking to him. He says, know for certain that your offspring will be, and what do we expect to hear? We'll possess the land. We'll go into the land, and they'll live happily ever after, but that's not what he says. Your offspring, that's what Abram's asking about, your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, literally slaves there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward they shall come out with great possessions. But as for you, Abram, you shall go to your fathers in peace. And you shall be buried in a good old age, literally with a head full of gray hair. And they shall come back here, they, speaking of the, uh, those offspring, they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So clearly this is a prophecy of the Israelites spending time in Egypt. He talks about your offspring. So this is Abram's offspring. These are the Hebrews, the Israelites. They will sojourn in a land that is not theirs. That's Egypt. They will be servants there, which happened. They were slaves in Egypt. They will be afflicted for 400 years. And we know that story very well. The question here is, why, why does God include this at this point in this story? What, 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 is, what is God doing here? Why, why does he interject this? Why didn't he just go straight from, hey, bring me the animals, and then Abram brings the animals, and he prepares them like he should, and then we see the smoking fire pot and the flaming torch? Because that, that's the rest of the story. Why, why does he seem to insert this prophecy about Egypt right in the middle there? Well, let's think about what's happening here. Let's think about what God's doing. Abram has asked for a sign. He, he wants to know for sure. How, how can I know for sure, God, that this is actually going to happen, that you're going to keep your promises? How, how, do, I, how do I know that I'm going to have offspring? Because I don't have any. I'm old. My wife's old. There's no hope, humanly speaking. So how do I know that? How do I know that I'm going to get the inheritance of land and my, and my offspring will inherit and possess the land? How do I know that? I want to know that for sure. Show me something that will give me assurance of that. That's what he's asking. And God's going to give him that sign in the next few verses, but before he does that, he includes this prophecy about Abram's offspring being sojourners in a land that's away from Canaan. Not in Canaan, but away from Canaan. And that they'll have a hard time. They'll be afflicted for hundreds of years. Why, why does God include that? I think what God's doing here is he's reminding Abram, and he's reminding us, by the way, that he's sovereign. That no matter what happens, that he is in control. And I think it's uncanny how Israel's sojourning in Egypt, both prophesied and it, it actually came true, how their sojourning in Egypt it mirrors very closely the sojourning of Abram and Sarai and their sojourning in Egypt just three, three chapters earlier in chapter 12 that we read about. If you recall, they go down to Egypt. There was a famine. They go down to Egypt. There was a lack of faith on their part. 
famine, they go to Egypt to get food. While they're there, they get afflicted by the Egyptians in that they get in trouble with Pharaoh, they get in trouble with the Egyptians, and, get, and then God brings judgment on the Egyptians. He brings great plagues on them and on Pharaoh's, Pharaoh's household. And then when they come out of Egypt, when they're delivered out of Egypt, they have their hands full of possessions, right, that Pharaoh gives them. And the exact same thing is going to happen to the Israelites just a couple hundred years later. But when they go down to Egypt, it will be spread out over 400 years just as God prophesied. So God is telling Abram, Abram, you will possess this land. Your, your inheritance, your, your offspring will possess this land. But not until they too sojourn in Europe, in, in Egypt. And see me, their God, deliver them out of that as I did you. And only then will I bring them back here, but it's, it's all according to my plan. So he says to Abram, yes, Abram. Yes, you've waited. You've waited a few years. But your offspring is going to wait a few hundred years. They're going to wait a long time for this promise to come true. But Abram, a day is like a thousand, a, 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 a day is like a thousand years to me. And so I will bring them back. So be patient. Keep trusting me. Because no matter what happens, I'm still in control. I've got the whole future written. I know what I'm doing. And so he interjects this this prophecy of of what's going to happen to remind Abram that no matter what happens, there's going to be a lot of things that happen as we walk through this story. God's in control. God's still working out his plan. We would do well to remember that as well. When things don't go according to plan for us, when things seem to be not going according to our timetable, we're too, like Abram, we are tempted to doubt and complain and be impatient. And God is telling Abram, he's telling us, all that stuff's in my control. It's in my hand. I'm, I'm working out my plan. Trust me. Be patient. I'm doing what is right. And we're even told here that part of God's plan in all of that is to wait until the peoples of Canaan become as as immoral and as guilty as they possibly can be. Look at verse 16. It's a very interesting statement. And they shall come back here, that is the Israelites shall come back to Canaan in the fourth generation. Why why are we going to wait 400 years? For, which is because, the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Now the word Amorites here is used in a representative way. It's It's to represent all the peoples of Canaan, all the Canaanites of that land. And these were pagan peoples. These were idol worshipers who had not recognized Yahweh as the one true God. And we're told that God will delay the Israelites coming back out of slavery in Egypt and into the promised land, into Canaan. He will delay their coming back. Why? Because the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Now that phrase literally means their iniquity or their sin is not yet 
to the full measure. It, it, it hasn't, hasn't reached its full measure yet. Like there's a, a measuring bowl of immorality and iniquity for the Canaanites. And, and, there's, a, and there's a lot of it in this bowl, but it's not yet full yet. It hasn't reached the full measure yet. But when it is, God will bring his chosen people back and they will dispossess the people of the land and they will possess it. They will drive out the peoples of that land and they will possess the land themselves. This to me is a great reminder that God's judgment and God's punishment is not capricious. It is not uncontrolled anger. It is not based on emotion. It is not unjust. God doesn't punish out of uncontrolled anger. His punishment is just and fair. It is measured like a measuring bowl. It's not capricious. It's not according to emotion or his mood. The Amorites will receive due judgment but only at the proper time and only at the proper measure. And when that measure is met, then they will be punished. That's so unlike how we punish our children, right? Sometimes it's just based on emotion and how we feel. God's judgment is not like that. It's always just, always fair, always measured, and always exactly right. So let's remember what's happened here so far. God reiterates the promise of land. And what does Abram do? He doubts. He's like, but how do, I, how do I really know? And he asks for the sign. And then God tells him to get some animals. He gets some animals. He prepares them apparently how God wanted them to be prepared. He cuts them in half, lays them over against one another. And then God causes Abram to go into a sleep. He gives them this prophecy that, Abram, your offspring, they're going to possess this land in 400 years. In the meantime, they're going to go through great affliction and calamity. And then I'm going to bring them out and bring them back to this land that I have given to them. And what we have next, after all of that, is God's formal ceremony of entering into this covenant with Abram. This is, this is, what, this is what Abram asked for. This is the sign. This is the symbolic assurance so that Abram can know that what God has promised is actually going to happen. So let's read verses 17 through 21. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces, that is, the, the carcasses of the animals. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. So this is, this is strange. What is going on with the smoking fire pot and the flaming torch passing between the animal pieces? Well, this is how covenants were entered into in the ancient Near East. Covenants were struck between two parties who enter into an agreement with one another. Many times it was a conquering king who entered into a covenant or required a covenant to be entered into by the people that he conquered. So a king would conquer a people, 
and then they would enter into this covenant. And, and how they do it is exactly as it's described in Genesis 15. They would, they would get an animal or two. They would cut the animal in half, long ways, and they would lay the animal carcasses in two rows. And then the conquered people would walk through the middle of those carcasses and in a very symbolic way, what they were saying was, okay, king, we will live according to your rules. We, we, will, we will obey your laws, and we will, we will be good subjects of your kingdom as a, as a conquered people. We'll, we'll obey the rules that you set for us. And if we don't, may it be done to us as it was done to these animals. And so in a very real way, as they walked through there, they were, they were invoking a curse on themselves if they didn't keep their covenant promises. And that's how the covenants were entered into. In fact, the words in verse 18 that to, to make a covenant, that he made a covenant with Abraham, literally, uh, the literal Hebrew means to cut a covenant. So it was all about cutting and walking between them. There's another biblical example of this in Jeremiah chapter 34. If you want to turn there, it would be a good thing to kind of look at. In Jeremiah chapter 34, um, what was happening? Well, Nebuchadnezzar was the king of Babylon. He was the ruler of Babylon, and he was besieging Jerusalem. He was attacking Jerusalem, coming against it, seeking to destroy it, to break down its walls, and to take the city captive. And the people of Jerusalem realized that one of the reasons why God was allowing this to happen is because they had broken covenant with God. They had stopped following God. They had stopped obeying God. They, they had stopped living up to their end of the bargain. And, and, and so the leaders of the people of Jerusalem, they call all the people together and they renew their covenant. And they do it in this very same way. And, and we read in Jeremiah chapter 34, beginning at verse 18, we read this. The Lord is speaking here, and he says this. The men who transgressed my covenant and did not keep the terms of the covenant that they made before me, I listen to this, I will make them like the calf that they cut in two and passed between the parts. The officials of Judah, the officials of Jerusalem, the eunuchs, the priests, and all the people of the land who pass between the parts of the calf. And I will give them into the hand of their enemies and to the hand of those who seek their lives. Their dead bodies shall be food for the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth. And so what, what had happened was the, the leaders had cut this covenant with God, renewed this covenant with God, and they cut a calf in half, and they put it on two sides, and, and they walked between those pieces of the slaughtered animals, saying, Lord, we're, we're renewing our promises to you, Lord. We're, we're going we're gonna to obey you this time, Lord. We're, we're going to be loyal to you. We're going to be good before you. We're going to do what you say, Lord. But as soon as Nebuchadnezzar stepped away for just a few moments, what were they doing? They were breaking covenant with God again. 
and, and you go through uh, Jeremiah chapter 33 and 34, and we, you see the ways in which they weren't, they weren't keeping covenant. And so God says, because you walk between those pieces when you, when you cut a covenant with me, I am going to do to you that which was symbolized when you slaughtered the animals for the covenant. That's what, a, that's what a formal covenant ceremony was in that time. That's what it meant, what it stood for. It, it meant that the one who walked between the pieces was invoking a curse on himself if he doesn't abide by the covenant so that it would be done to him just as it was done to the animals that he's walking between. Whether it was a conquered people who was walking between the pieces before a, a conquering king. Or in the case of a bilateral covenant, a bilateral covenant was between two equal parties that, that had to uh, be in agreement with one another. In that case, they both walked through the pieces. They both were saying, I'm going to do this, and you're going to do that, and this is how we can, this is how we can know that one another is going to fulfill our part of the bargain because we're invoking a curse on ourselves if we don't. That we're saying, I, I, I am invoking a curse of death on myself, just like these animals, if I don't live up to my end of the bargain. And what's really interesting about, and amazing really, about this story in Genesis 15 is that it's not Abram who walks through the pieces. It's God. It's not the servant. It's not the, it's not the conquered people. It is the conquering king himself that walks through the pieces. This is not a bilateral covenant between two equal parties who each promise to do their part. This is a unilateral covenant whereby God alone walks through the pieces. And God alone is promising to keep his covenant promises. His presence is what is represented by the smoking fire pot and the, and the flaming torch that's listed there. Both of these represent the presence of God. Think about the Israelites who are listening to this story for the first time or reading this story from Moses as they're wandering in the Sinai wilderness hundreds of years later. They would have certainly understood what is represented by the smoking fire pot and the flaming torch because they were led by the presence of God by a pillar of cloud or smoke by night and by a pillar of fire by day. Actually, it's opposite. A pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And those things represented the presence of God for them. And it represented the same for Abram in this, in this vision. The smoke and the fire passing through the pieces represented the presence of God. That it was God who was walking through there. Sovereign creator invoking a curse on himself, a curse of death, if he did not keep his promises. It wasn't Abram. It wasn't a conquered people. It was a conquering king, Yahweh. The Lord passes through here. As if to say to Abram, Abram, I promise, I promise you unto my own death that I will keep these promises. And Abram, be it done to me as 
we have done to these animals if I do not fulfill my covenant promises. So what did Abram ask for? He asked for a sign. He asked for something so that he could know for sure that this is actually going to happen. What does God do? He himself passes through the pieces as if to say, you can know because I, I invoke a curse of death on myself as God if I don't keep these promises. What does that tell us? It tells us it's all on God's shoulders. It's unilateral. It's up to him to keep these promises and to keep his covenant and all the aspects of his covenant promises. And of course we remember that part of his covenant promises is that a descendant from Abraham, one who would come from his loins, one who would come from his seed, would crush the head of the serpent and defeat sin and death. And that that sacrifice was not just for the Israelites, but for all those who place their faith in Christ. Because it is those who have faith in Christ alone who are the true spiritual children and offspring of Abraham, as Paul tells us in Romans 4. So our very own salvation is wrapped up in this covenant ceremony. And we can know that God will make all this happen for his chosen people, his elect, because it is he who walks through the pieces. It's not up to us. It is up to God. And so we, we, we go back to, to Paul in, in Romans, and, and, we, and we place ourselves under his tutelage, and we're, and we're wondering, will I really be saved? Don't, don't I stand under the judgment of my own sin? And he says, no, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because God has cut a covenant with us. This is the third time of my counting, at least, in Abram's life that we've seen so far since chapter 12 where God has repeated and reiterated his covenant promises to Abram. And it won't be the last. He will continue to do this, not just with Abram, but with the other patriarchs and the other prophets and all of Israel, all throughout the Old Testament. He'll continue to remind them, this is what I'm doing. This is where I'm going. I'm going to keep these promises. And all of these promises, ceremonies, point to Jesus. Because we're reminded of what Jesus says. In Luke chapter 22, verse 20, when he's sharing the Passover meal with his disciples and he's instituting the Lord's Supper, on that night, the night that he would be betrayed leading up to his crucifixion, as he's pouring out the wine, this is what he says. This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Now, in saying that it was a new covenant, he wasn't saying that the covenant with Abraham is abrogated or that it's somehow obsolete or done away with. But instead, he was saying that covenant ceremony was pointing to this new one, this new covenant ceremony where I will be crucified, my body will be cut, and I will rise again. That is the complete fulfillment of all the promises that God made to Abraham. And 
what it requires from us is repentance and faith. In response to this kind of message, um, I think the Lord deserves our thanks. Um, he deserves our worship. He deserves our service. Uh, we, should, we should thank him that he's patient with us when we're impatient with him. That he is gracious to us when we're complaining and when we're doubting and when we're begrudging his plans. We should be reminded here that he's sovereign. He's telling us in this passage that he's sovereign and he's in control no matter how chaotic life gets, no matter how unmanageable life gets and throws us curves at every turn. We should be reminded God's in control. He's got this. But mostly, we should respond in faithful worship, not just with our lips, but with our lives, in faithful service of him, in response to this God who has so graciously cut a covenant with us by offering his son as a sacrifice. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we do want to do that. We want to return thanks to you. for who you are. God, thank you so much that you treat us with such patience. You know that we are weak and broken vessels, just like Abram, who in many ways is to be the, the picture of faith in you, and yet we see his faith wavering, and we see you being gracious and compassionate and patient with him. Thank you, Father, for so many times and ways in which you're patient with me and my brothers and sisters here. You're good and kind in that way. We thank you for that. And God, we recognize that you're sovereign, even though we don't understand why everything happens. We, we don't know what's around the bend, but just as you prophesied hundreds of years in the future for Abram, you know what's around the bend for us. And you promise that you work out all things for the good of those who love you and are called according to your purpose. And so we believe, but Lord, help us in our unbelief as we struggle with doubt, as we struggle to confidently believe that, that that's actually the case, that you are working together all things for our good and your glory. And God, we want to, we to, we want to worship you as the God that you are, out of thankfulness and gratefulness for cutting a covenant with us, making a covenant, for passing between the pieces that, that ultimately it's not up to us and our weak attempts to try to follow you, that you will cause us to persevere in faith to the end because you walk through the pieces and you promised by invoking a curse on yourself that all your promises would be kept. And so we know, as we read out of Romans chapter 8, nothing can separate us now. Nothing can separate us, not even ourselves, can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Thank you for that, Father. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.